Thank you so much for joining us on the program. We come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times. And uh, we certainly hope that you are able to listen. If not, you can always go to the podcasts, which are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations. Too numerous to mention at this time. But we encourage you to check it out. Uh, check them out, I guess I should say. We hope that you will, uh, you will do just that. And also, if you'd like to support the work we're doing, if it resonates with you, we'd love to have your support uh, financially. That's why we have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours so that uh, you can uh, basically begin the process of uh, your transformational, uh, uh, transformational change. We thank you so much for being with us, and we also encourage you to go to our guest website, which we'll be giving to you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process. And we ask you to participate in the 2020s. That's the decade of perfect vision. We want you to go within, spend some time, whether it's meditation, you can call it whatever you want, just peaceful place to go, calming, re-energizing, get yourself some good information, if you will. Uh, insights, um, and all of the good stuff that uh, you can get from within. You also get to know yourself a little more. I know it can be a little scary because we haven't really been taught to do that, but I hope that you will. Today's program, I think you're going to enjoy. I, um, I'm going to enjoy it because um, uh, it's going to teach us how to do something in the workplace, but probably it'll uh, bleed over or spill over or flow overflow into other areas of our lives. I can't say that my workplace has been dehumanized, uh, but sometimes we feel that way. And we're gonna talk about rehumanizing the workplace with Rosie Ward. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, excited to be here. This is uh, something that is, I don't know, kind of new. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, we've been trying to transform the workplace for, for decades, and it certainly is being transformed now, I mean, in a big way, by yeah. virtue of the virus. There's no question, because the workplace is now sort of the home place, right? For but many people, yeah, for sure. I've been continuing to go to the same workplace that I was going to before March, before the pandemic, before any of this stuff happened. And so I've been one of the fortunate ones. My wife was furloughed for eight weeks and um, it was interesting uh, to have her home for eight weeks. Uh, it was more profitable <laughs> as many people have experienced. Again, at the same time, it's like, I don't think I could handle being off for eight weeks doing nothing. Um, and so now we're going back into the workplace and trying to figure out what we're going to do and how, how uh, certainly the rules have changed as far as how we behave, how we interact, how we connect and all of that stuff. Yeah. I'm curious as to, for you, was this a subject that you were thinking about even before the pandemic started? Because I've had a lot of guests on whose books just happened to be coming out right about now. And they had just finished writing it right about the beginning of 2020. 
Yeah, we're in the same boat. Ours officially launched March 24th, so it was right when everything was shutting down in this country. And we thought, wow, what a great time to launch a book. And I think that I never could have imagined how relevant the concepts would be even more so because I think of what what we're experiencing. So I would love to say that I had a crystal ball or that I you know, had foreshadowing, but I think there's been a movement to have a different work experience long before 2020 hit. And I think then you have a global health crisis and you layer on top of that a global justice, social justice crisis. And I think that it has just brought these ideas to light even more and people, whether they've been furloughed, whether they've been laid off, whether they were working for a human workplace or a dehumanized workplace, it's kind of been a big reset and people are reevaluating what matters. They're looking at what they're willing to put up with. They're looking at if they have lost a job or, you know, they're, they're people who have mobility, even in this job market, they're rethinking what matters to them. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a different ball game. So when, uh, when you start looking at this from the standpoint of the future, I mean, I've seen a lot of, uh, I don't want to say documentaries, news stories, <laughs> news stories showing the, the new workplace. And they've got stuff on the floor, masking out six feet and around desks and um, the spacing and all of these different things, plexiglass all over the place. I was looking for plexiglass, not for that. I was going to put it up um, in front of some screening that I had put up uh, on our porch for weatherproofing. And I couldn't find any for the longest <laughs> time. And I couldn't figure out why at first. And this was back in March, early April. And I couldn't, honestly, I did not know why it wasn't available. And then I went into some of the stores. I'm going, oh, you guys have it. Can I have yours? I need it for my home. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, is this something that we, it's absolutely necessary that we start thinking differently about uh, not only the workplace, but even the home place, uh, the recreational place and so forth and so on. Because some say that it isn't going to make any difference. Even if we get a vaccine, we're still going to be faced with this contagious issue. Maybe it won't be COVID, the coronavirus. But every year we get the influenza. It flies around the, flies around the planet. And for years we did nothing. Right. I mean, uh, oh, the flu shot. We got the flu shot. But we would still send our kids to school with the sniffles, with the runny nose and all of that stuff. And then we would wonder why our family gets it. And then the family next door and so on and so forth. That's why I always thought it was kind of weird. Oh, the kids, that won't be a problem if they go back to school during the COVID period because they won't be the spreaders. Seriously? Do you <laughs> not have children? It's a Petri dish. <laughs> God. Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Anyway. So, yeah. so what about that in terms of, um, you think this is, this is uh, what you are talking about could be going into five or 10 years down the road? Well, yeah, cause I think there's two, there's, they're interrelated, but there's two different things going on. I think when you look at the coronavirus specifically in the pandemic and the death rate and the steps that everyone is needing to take, Obviously, it's more contagious than other things. I'm not the scientific medical expert, but I do think 
you know, everyone's saying it's going to be quite a while, right? Even if we get a vaccine, then you, you have to have people build up immunity. So we're going to be we're going to be shifting the way that we interact for quite a while in terms of maybe not traveling as much, maybe the, the physical social distancing, wearing masks, whatever. So I think new protocols and new habits are being laid for that. What hasn't changed though, is that if you just look at us as human beings, we are neurobiologically hardwired to be in connection with one another. And so, and so finding ways when we have to be physically separated to do that in a thoughtful, meaningful way. And I love that you started this out talking about looking inward because a lot of the work that we do, if we talk about having a rehumanized workplace, experiences like what's been happening in 2020 triggers us left and right to want to self-protect, to want to you know, look at ourselves first versus our neighbors. It triggers us to show up as not the best version of ourselves. And when you have a whole bunch of people that are doubling down on self-protection and are reactive and are triggered rather than aware and present, it just exacerbates communication problems. It exacerbates abilities to be able to make good decisions and workplaces get even more and more dysfunctional, whether you're physically going to a workplace or not. And so when I think about rehumanizing the workplace and the work we do, this was stuff that was relevant pre-COVID. And I think it's going to be even more relevant because we have to be able to show up in the face of incredible disruption and still show up well and still be able to make a difference. And, and I think that what 2020 has shown us is where there are significant gaps of people being able to actually do that. Well, what I find interesting is that as of our conversation, there is one country that has begun going back to normal. And it's because they did what was needed to be done. Now, I heard the comment from someone, yes, I, I acknowledge the fact, yes, it's a totalitarian system. But they did it. And it's China. China's going back to normal. They don't have the vaccine, but they've virtually, I would, I'm not saying this for a fact anything or anything, but they've virtually eradicated the spread because they wore the masks, they washed their hands and they stayed apart from one another. Yeah. And it's like, they, it's, and, and here's the funny part about it, the, almost the irony. They're a totalitarian system from what I've been told. I've never lived there. My brother's been there many times because he was working on their amusement park for Disney. They don't have the kind of freedoms that we do. And we can't get it together. Right. Now, I'm not advocating us going to a totalitarian form of government. But what is our problem? Because... I don't know of anybody that's going to want to go into the workplace where they used to have a floor filled with people working at desks and cubicles and so forth and so on. Right. Uh, you know, because not everybody is a, of the same mind. Not everybody's trusting the science. What, what are your thoughts, especially, and I, and I realize we're kind of focusing on this specifically, and I'm, I'm wondering if that is the main focus of what we're talking about here today with you is because of COVID or is this something that is broader influenza or chickenpox or tuberculosis or anything else that's in that regard, or is it not just disease? 
Yeah, I would say it's way broader. I mean, the physical health and disease, but I would, I would say emotionally. I mean, if you look at our whole premise behind the work that we do in writing the book was looking at the research uh, from Jeffrey Pfeffer and other people looking at that our workplaces, even pre-COVID, were literally killing us due to excess stress. And you look at how stress manifests itself in our body. And most of that is work. And if you look at his research prior to COVID, I don't, it'd be interesting to see what it is now, but be pre-COVID workplaces were the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and 8% of our healthcare spend because people, they have toxic leadership, toxic cultures, those types of things. So I think it's way bigger than COVID. And that has added a new level of physical uh, risk, right? Physical health risk, but I would say emotional health risk and, and what those toxic workplace cultures have done to people that, that, that has been going on for a long, long time. And so it's much broader than that. And that's why I think I say when people are rethinking work, they're certainly thinking about, do I want to go back to a floor of cubicles? If I have that option, because some people don't, they work in retail or they work in manufacturing or whatnot, but even they're having to refigure, how do we keep people apart, but yet follow safety protocols? If we need two people to lift something, or if we need two people to be a safety check on something, and we have clients that are in that position and it's, it's stretching them from a safety standpoint, because they're having a hard time following their normal safety protocols to also keep to follow the, the COVID protocols, right? So it's like you have to, tr- there's trade-offs. And so, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, whether it's influenza or, or whatnot, there's the, do I want to go back to a workplace before I feel safe about things? But then there's also, how is my employer treating me? Does my manager give a rat's ass about me? Do they actually check in on me? Do they know that I'm struggling at home with, you know, homeschooling my kids, or I have people in my family at risk, do they actually care about me as a person or do they just care about the work being done? Are they giving me, if I have the ability, again, based on my work, are they giving me the autonomy to to figure out how to make this integration of work and personal life work for me? Are they um, are they supporting me? I mean, there, there's so much at stake that I, I, I think it's such a bigger a bigger issue. It was pre-COVID. And I think that uh, COVID has just exacerbated that. And then if you take all of the racial inequalities and social injustices that are going on, people are then saying, and by the way, can you also see me as a human being? Right. And, and can you, can you, um, can you honor um, and have inclusivity and belonging? And so I just think that it's, it's such a bigger discussion. Yeah, and that's what we're going to talk about here on the program today. Rosie Ward is my guest. We're talking about uh, rehumanizing the workplace. Uh, <laughs> can we rehumanize society? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, that would be just so much fun to do to rehumanize society. Uh, it's just gotten to the point where nobody trusts anybody. I mean, we so allegedly we don't live under a totalitarian dictatorship or fascism or anything of that nature, and yet. The one thing that does exist that existed uh, in Nazi Germany was the fact that you could not trust your neighbor yeah. to spy on you, to do whatever. Um, I'm not saying that people are turning people in. That's not what I'm saying. It's right. that you can't talk to one another about the things that are really, that are important. Uh, you can't talk about... Uh, I mean, what are the three subjects you don't talk about at the dinner table? Yeah, you don't talk about my husband. and I literally were talking about this yesterday. You don't talk about politics. Right. You don't talk about religion. Right. And then and it depends yeah. on what you consider the third one. You don't oh, talk okay. about sex at the dinner table. You don't table. talk about sex at the dinner table. There okay. you go. You don't talk about 
And and the la- now I don't have a problem talking about talking religion. I, well, you and I could have that chat right now. Okay, yeah. spirituality, metaphysics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No problem. And <clears throat> yeah, we could converse a little bit about sex if you wanted to. But if we get into politics and we're on different sides in the atmosphere in which we are in this country today, forget about it. And we've we've even heard in after the 2016 election. We heard about not only families, but couples who divorced said, uh-uh, if you're for that guy or you're for that gal, I'm out of here. Right. And uh, we're done because there's no way that I can live with that. Yeah. And, and it's just and then there's the whole aspect of information. And you can then add whatever adjective you want in front of it or prefix, uh, uh, prefix in front of that that you want. And people just don't trust. I mean, it was one thing in the 60s, you heard the phrase, don't trust authority. I think that was a key phrase in the 60s amongst the the, the revolutionaries, the hippies and so forth. Um, Question everything. Uh, We're not questioning anything because we're not trusting anything. It's like, no, 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 I'll get my information from over here. An echo chamber that does nothing more than repeats back to you. And this is part of the the issue we've got even in our workplace, that you've got people of divergent beliefs and perspectives. And I think that one of the things that uh, in in a previous interview that I did, one of the subjects that came up, talk to us about the issue of actually listening to someone. Yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, what's interesting is I actually was having a conversation recently with Bob Chapman. He's the CEO of Barry Waymiller, and he wrote a great book called Everybody Matters. And we were talking about listening and talking about how so much of our brokenness in families and workplaces and society is because we do not listen. We listen with the intent to reply, to assert our rightness, to double down on what we believe rather than listening with curiosity, listening with Perhaps I might be wrong about something. Perhaps I can learn something from you. Um, You know, Brene Brown uses the term armoring up, but we are so armored and we are so in that, you know, we are going to double down and self-protect and not make ourselves vulnerable to anything that we would rather be on the attack, be on the offensive, you know, forget if I'm going to listen to you, forget if, you know, I might be open to the fact that I could learn something or, or whatnot. And I think it's easier to rally people then around, um, uh, distrust or hating somebody or whatever it might be. And it just keeps us further and further divided, right? Where in order for us to truly be inclusive and to be connected and belong, which is in our human DNA, like I think it's false belonging when we think, oh, like, oh, we both have a mutual hate of fill in the blank. I don't care who it is, right? Fill in the blank, a politician or whatever, a public figure. And we feel like, oh, we're bonding, but that's not, that's not connection, Right. And, and it actually takes us being willing to get uncomfortable, to lean in and to be curious and listen to people to actually have true connection. And it doesn't mean we're not going to disagree. It doesn't mean that I might think like some of your beliefs are off your rocker or whatever, but I'm willing to like see you as a human being and be curious about, well, where did you get that from? Or you seem really dug in here. Like, where is that coming from? And we don't have that discord anymore because we can't listen. All we want to do is talk and assert our rightness. There's a quote I heard, and I share this in a lot of the programs now, and that is, you and I can't both be right 
but we can both be wrong. Yeah. And I wonder how many people are willing to be wrong. I had a guest. We were talking about a subject. Uh, he says, well, let me show you my perspective. He did. And my response was, well, there goes another one of my grass shacks up in flames. Because what he had to say was, it wasn't just contrary. It made more sense than yeah. the position that I had. And it wasn't a huge thing. I mean, it's not like, oh, I got to change my entire philosophical outlook on life. You know, I was following uh, Teilhard uh, de Chardin, and now I got to go follow this other guy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, but I, it's like I told my sister years ago, my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today are not my beliefs of tomorrow because I'm still alive. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still experiencing. Yeah. And nobody, I don't care how certain they may say they are. Nobody knows. And to take the agnostic position is to me the most honest position to take on yeah. anything. Yeah. Well, and I, I love, I love that. And I love that you were talking about paradigms earlier because we talk about paradigms in our work. And in fact, we have a community of people that we we've trained and we call them paradigm pioneers. And so I, what comes to mind is I think, and you probably know this too, but we always talk about the story of Galileo, right? And you think about the paradigm back in his day, it was the earth was the center of the universe and everyone believed that, you know, everything revolved around the earth. And what's so interesting is he was not the first person to suggest that wasn't true, but he was the first person to provide evidence, something that made more sense. Here's a telescope. Let me prove it to you. And the, you know, as the story goes that not only was he, you know, lived, had to live out his days in house arrest, people wouldn't even look through the dang telescope because it was so threatening. Right. And so I think sometimes when we have beliefs that are so strong and we're so attached to the rightness of those beliefs, anything that comes clashing with it, you know, we either, I always say we kind of have two choices. We either kind of take in that info and we start to shift our paradigm and it's easier for some things than others. And we start to go, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. And yeah, I'm learning and growing and evolving and what I know now versus what I thought five years ago, because you're open to learning and growing and going, oh God, that makes more sense. Oh, I wish I would have known that then. Right. And then you have people that double down on their rightness and they won't even look through the dang telescope. And I think um, a lot of the divisiveness we're seeing is that I'm not hell, hell if I'm going to even uh, risk the fact that I could be wrong. And, and it's, uh, and it's so interesting because we, we cannot be in our brains physiologically. We cannot be both curious um, and helpful and in a, in a place of service and be rightness, um, attached to our rightness and judging at the same time. Like we can't be judging and helping at the same time, right? We can't be right and be connected at the same time. Like there is a binary thing going on here. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me. You know, one of the things too, that I, we were watching this documentary, which I could have done without myself <clears throat> on the whole cyber, cyber war that has been going on for the last decade or two. And uh, supposedly the United States started the war uh, by attacking the Iranian nuclear power plant back in, I don't know, it was 2004, five or six or something like that. And um, to destroy their centrifuges. And then of course they, they start going through all the scenarios over the years up to the 2016 election. And then even talking about the 2020 election. And I thought, you're saying the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. Okay, I won't argue that point, but I happen to be in a very interesting place where there is no way that the Russians can influence my vote 
because I'm not on social media. I don't have a Facebook account. Yes, I have Twitter, but I only send tweets. I do not spend my hours flipping through uh, twit, Twitter. Tw- uh, oh, for the love of Pete. That, tweets. <laughs> so, thank you. I don't go through those. I don't spend time doing that. I don't spend time on Instagram. I don't spend time on any of those social media sites. I only send out tweets whenever, for example, when this program's done, I will send a tweet out saying, hey, this interview is up on SoundCloud. Go check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. So I've avoided the influence. I hear mm-hmm. about it, that it, allegedly, but it tells me that the American people, they, it's like, they're, they're so malleable, you know, and yet they scream independence. And I find that interesting. And I realize this may be going a little far afield, but I know we have this kind of dichotomy within the workplace. When you go to work for a company, you're supposed to become part of that team. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to work together and usually for the common good of the company, for profitability, for quality of product or service um, so that you get a a decent wage that you can live on to support yourself, your family, get the things that you want, uh, create a better society, on and on and on and on. There was a story on ABC News Radio back in the 80s, Motorola. We're laying off about a thousand people. And the reason was because they'd done an audit and they found that a million dollars worth of materials was missing. And the only ones who could have taken it were employees. Now, whether the thousand was the people who actually pilfered or not. So what they did was they destroyed the company they were working for in a manner of speaking. They, they interfered with the productivity and the quality because they didn't think they were getting paid enough or whatever the reason was that they decided, oh, I'm going to take the stapler. You, you hear this all the time, <laughs> you know, like uh, in different movies. I'm taking the stapler and I'm taking this and that and the other. Are you kidding me? Come on. Mm-hmm. So what about that aspect of that kind of mentality in the workplace when you have employees? And yes, you may be right, Rosie. The employer's a jackass. And maybe the the top of the corporation just doesn't care. They don't see the workers as human beings, but only as commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, set that aside for a moment, if that's even possible. I don't know. What about that attitude to, uh, by the employee? Yeah, well, you you bring up a good you bring up a really good point, and I think what I always say is that uh, yes, it absolutely matters if you have the CEO or leaders who are treating people poorly or not. But you also have organizations where the CEO is the most human person, but it falls apart at mid-level manager or below. So we always say that culture is not the CEO's responsibility. It is not the HR department's responsibility. It is everybody's responsibility. Every single person either contributes or contaminates the workplace culture. And so one of the things we talk about in our book that has been a huge eye-opener for me is that culture really doesn't start at the top. It really is built team by team. I mean, psychological safety resides at the team level. You think about grassroots organizing. You know, I can be in a bubble and have a team where we have each other's backs, where we feel like we have fulfilling work. Um, and and we there might be dysfunction over in this area of the company, but that's not our experience. And so you hear that, you know, people leave leave their bosses, they don't leave their companies. Well, part of it gets back to that 
work team culture. And every single one of us on that team is responsible for that culture. So one of the things that when we look at rehumanizing the workplace, it's really, honestly, we look at leadership as it is not necessarily a title or a role that is given to you or power or authority. Cause let's be honest, you can go into organizations into in the, to the C-suite or wherever and not find a leader anywhere. And you can be amongst truck drivers and frontline workers and warehouse floors and find leaders everywhere. And so we say that leadership at its core is a behavior, not a title or a role. And that we define it as it's maximizing our positive impact on the world by doing two things, by becoming our best fully authentic self, which is where the self-awareness and inquiry and, and comes in so that we can support those around us to step, step into their greatness, right? So it's kind of like self and then others. And so when we look at that, you say, okay, on a team level, are we helping teams, each individual learn how to be more self-aware, right? To speak and articulate clearly, listen before they speak. So are we teach them how to listen well? Are we teach them how to be self-aware and, and kind of emotion intelligence 101? Can they manage themselves when they're triggered and know how to process difficult emotions versus shaming and blaming people? Can we help them move from... Um, what the Arbinger Institute calls an inward to an outward mindset. So an inward mindset. And I think what you're seeing is my vantage point is all about how does this person, this team, this customer, this policy, everyone affect me. And all I care about is I have needs, I have objectives, I have challenges, and I don't care that you have them or that this person has them, right? It's all about me. And I think that's where you see this. Nope, you're infringing on my rights and whatever, whether it's a mask or this or that, all I care about is myself. And in an outward mindset, we turn our vantage point outwards and we realize we're part of a community. We're part of a team. We're part of a workplace. And we recognize that you also have needs and objectives and challenges. And this person also has needs and objectives and challenges. And I have a vantage point of service and go, okay, yes, I have needs, but I recognize you do too. And how could I adjust my efforts to be a little bit more helpful for you? And so when you have, when you teach people the skills to actually show up as a leader and to move from that inward to an outward mindset and learn how to listen and learn how to be self-aware, you can transform workplaces because everybody contributes to that culture. So it's a different way of looking at it. And certainly if you've just got dysfunction across the board and you, you can't, you can't show up as a decent human being because the dysfunction around you is that great. Well, then that's a different story. And hopefully you can find a different place to eventually be. Um, but, but a lot of the work we do is really going in at that local team level, one team at a time, taking a couple people that have the courage to show up as leaders. And guess what? It's a ripple effect. Like it's contagious in a good way. <laughs> but not everybody has the aptitude. I think that's probably the best word uh, to be a leader that, you know, out of 10 people in a room, maybe only two or three at most, might actually have the aptitude for leadership? Well, I, well, I think it goes back to how you view leadership. Because I look at, if, if I am trying to, if I view leadership as it's about having people follow me and trying to um, support others' development in, like, I'm going to say a more formal role, yeah, that is one thing. Not everyone is cut out for that. But the way that we look at it is every single person on a team has an opportunity to show up and make a positive difference to their coworker coworker, their customer. And, and I can't do that if I'm showing up as a jackass, 
right? I can't do that if I'm completely don't know how to listen. I'm not self-aware. So when we look at leadership, I, we look at every single one of us, whether we're at work or at home, I can show up as a leader in my neighborhood by making a difference with my my neighbor, with my kids in school, with my friends. And so I think it's it's how we view leadership. And, and if we look at it as it's really our opportunity to show up as the best version we can of ourselves any given day, and we're trying to have a positive impact around us, like my, my son can show up as a leader with his friends and in his classroom. And so I just think it's re, it depends on how you look at leadership. And we look at it as it's not that role. It's really more of a behavior and a mindset. So we need to define what a leader is, what leadership is. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of examples, uh, both uh, people in, in the public eye, as well as behind the scenes. And um, there are certainly uh, uh, wonderful examples of horrible leadership in the traditional definition, as you've talked right. about. But we've also seen incredibly wonderful examples of individuals taking a leadership role in their communities to help and serve their fellow community members, especially during this time. For sure. 100%. So w- would you say that there is a, there is a component of the we'll call it the American spirit, or is it broader than that? The human spirit that comes out in these times for people to take that leadership role of, shall we say, of service. I I think so. I am a firm believer that when times are tough or times challenge us, that's where we learn what people are really made of. Right? Are do do they turn around and are they self-serving and they double down on you know um, the you know that me focus or do they look for how can I help? How can I be of service? How can I you know find my resiliency and get back up again or you know help move something forward? And I and I think that during this time we've started to see really clearly who are people who can show up as leaders and who aren't, even though they might have a title or role or authority or responsibility. And I think 2020 when we face crises, it shines a light and shows you who's actually a leader and who's not. We've seen that pretty clearly in a lot of instances. And, and unfortunately it is, uh, it can be uh, a little too, uh, too late, uh, too little too late sometimes when we discover that because the damage has been done because the individual, whoever that is, you know, uh, has not done what it was that they were supposed to do as the leader in whether it's a business or a group or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just causes, causes more harm. And now someone else has to step up and say, okay, uh, we need to do something different here because what was being done wasn't helpful. You know, and again, I, I think you're absolutely right. We don't want to get into the blame game here. We don't mm-hmm. want to get into the pointing fingers because that's not, because that then is just as unhelpful <laughs> as right. the poor leadership that got us into the position that we now need to find our way out of. Right. I find it interesting too, the especially in the echo chambers of the media, uh, the name calling, and you hear it a lot. And that one of the questions that I constantly am maybe yelling at the TV or the radio is, how is this helping? Yeah. It isn't. 
And no. unfortunately, words, as I've said many times on this program, uh, and I want you to address this, words have power. They, they have huge power. And we actually have a whole section in our book talking about language. Language has the power to connect us and humanize us. And language has the power to dehumanize us. And you think of so much of the language that we use that is dismissive, that dehumanizes. Um, even in business, so much of our language is actually taken like from the military, but makes it sound like a battleground. We talk about the front lines. We, you know, we talk up, we use, uh, we use these terms that makes it feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to a war zone every time I, I go to work. And so we really talk about being extremely mindful of our language and even simple things like, you know, you hear a lot of businesses talk about, well, we need to drive performance or drive engagement or drive this. And I'm like, you drive automobiles, like you engage <laughs> and elicit and, you know, nurture people, you know, or, I mean, and I, there's just so many terms you hear that people don't think about in it, or we talk about, you know, our people are our greatest asset. I'm like, so they're belonging now, like they're not living thinking beings. So language matters hugely. And when we start dismissing groups or using judgmental labels, it makes it easier in our brain to deal with the dissonance of, oh, see, now I'm dismissing you. I don't see you as a human. I see you as an object. And so now I, now I can like, I can justify the fact that I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to consider you. I certainly don't need to help you. And it's literally that language that dehumanizes in our brains keeps us from feeling the dissonance of, oh, here's a group that's being marginalized, or here's a group that's being oppressed, or here's a group that doesn't have a voice, because we're actually not seeing them as a human being. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, the thought just came to me as you were, as you were sharing that. And, and forgive me, I, I wasn't looking for a reply, but the universe asks the questions, I'm just along for the ride. So if it puts an image, image in my head, I have to follow up because it was a, a, from what you said, what you just said. Do you ever see any of the movies uh, about uh, the uh, young man uh, in Atlanta during the Olympics who was accused of uh, planting a bomb at the Olympics that year. There have been several movies that we've watched. I can't, why, I cannot remember the young man's name now. And yeah, uh, I want to say it was Richard something. But um, anyway, you, you know the story I'm talking about. Yeah. And it turns out he had nothing to do with it. Well, the movie that we watched about this, this incident was very interesting to, and this goes to your point of, of um, uh, not only in terms of the inner squabbles within a, a company or an organization or a community, but they, the, the squabbles between the various law enforcement agencies. It's like, excuse me, guys, what is the goal here? Is the goal to find out who it was that planted and detonated that bomb, or is it to uh, uh, play to to start playing turf war? Who's in control here? Well, we're the FBI. Well, we're the CIA. Well, we're the this. We're the. And then, when they think they have their person, then it turns out they didn't. They stopped looking. My understanding is they never have found the person who planted that bomb. But the point is that people, they get locked into their turf. Talk to us about uh, workplace turf wars. Yeah. Well, there's, you see the turf wars a lot in, um, 
high stress environments. And I would also say more of those dehumanized environments in that, again, I'm going to go back to this, uh, to borrow from Brene Brown, this analogy of armor and self-protection. So if I am, my vantage point is all about, you know, I want to make sure my job's secure or my pay, paycheck is secure or my customer or whatever. Um, I can't turn my vantage point outwards and really serve the common purpose of the organization, right? I can't, because all I care about is me, myself, and I, and what you see with turf wars is it's really that it's the lack of collaboration because I am so about, I'm going to hoard this information because then somehow I think it makes me more valuable to the organization and I'm going to be less likely to be on the chopping block, right? So there's this, there's this anxiety and this stress and this angst, or you know what? I'm not going to give you credit because somehow I think that you getting credit makes me somehow less than or me less valuable. And so I think you see a lot of turf war showing up when people are in that self-protective mode, when they when they have a skewed view of where they add value, they they can't see that, you know, me lifting somebody else up or me collaborating with somebody actually has me add more value than me being the shining star, right? And collecting gold stars and getting it for myself. So it's it's a it's a form of self-protection. It's a form of armor. And I think you see turf war showing up more and more and more in in high stress um, environments where there's lack of trust. Uh, it's it, it can be a huge, huge problem. You know, it's absolutely. And I myself in my career I learned early on that I want to share everything I know with everybody, because if I don't, I'm going to be stuck right where I am, protecting my little corner of the office or the station or whatever. And I don't get to grow. I don't get to expand. I mean, I've been in this business for 41 years, and I am only now beginning to do video editing. I had no plans on it. But because of COVID and Zoom and they want, we'd like you to record this for, because then you can send us the file. And and then I'm doing Zoom theater. And it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. And this could turn into something really big for me, you know, because people are going to want their, you know, their their performance, their appearance, whatever, in a a video format. Mm Mm-hmm. Look, see, I was on his program or I was on that show or I was doing this or what have you. And so I was like, wow. So we're reinventing ourselves. What about uh, the, the aspect of uh, rebuilding, uh, rehumanizing the workplace and the aspect of reinvention, not only of the workplace, but of the workers and their skills and abilities and talents in the workplace? Yeah, I think that we, uh, when we talk about rehumanizing the workplace, I say, while that's the focus of the book, everything in there is also about how you can use these principles to reset yourself, to show up as a leader, to also make a difference in your communities and your families. And I do think that when we look at technology and and you just look at the jobs that we have now, one of the things we talk about in the beginning of the book is that you know there has been this move of oh my gosh, is technology or artificial intelligence going to, you know, take away all these jobs. But I think what we're finding is there's an opportunity where machine logic and technology might be able to replace, I'm going to say jobs that maybe 
don't need as much thinking or, or don't need um, the human creative brain. But there is so much where we need the human creative brain that you can't design a machine to do that. And we need people to be able to think and to solve problems and to collaborate and innovate. And that's things only people can do, not machines. And so I think when we look at reinventing ourselves, and even if people are in a role where maybe it's it's in danger of being shifted over to machines doing that job, but you have a brain, you have a heart, you have ideas, you have communication skills. And so I think that people have an opportunity to reset and, and look out where are my gifts and talents? Um, where, where can they be of service? Where can they be of use? What are the things that I um, am interested in and how can I contribute and add value? And I think, um, again, it's kind of that, that, that mindset of service, but this is a huge opportunity, I think, for, for people to not just look at what matters to them and what's important, but, but to reset and if necessary, re, reinvent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, obviously, that's something that, that each one of us has to evaluate. I, uh, I still uh, think about this public service announcement I saw years ago that showed uh, how to choose the type of work that you should be doing. Uh, and uh, it has to do with the kind of play you did as a child. Mm-hmm. If it was playing with trucks in the dirt and what have you, well, maybe, you'll, maybe you'd do well in uh, construction and contracting. Uh, if you liked uh, playing with uh, etch a uh, not etch a sketch, uh, uh, what with erector sets, which mm-hmm. were the, 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 the some of them came with motors. Maybe you want to be an engineer, you know, or a mechanic. I mean, and the list goes on and on. What about the aspect of education and uh, shall we say knowledge base, and even include into that just an intuitive nature about things? Uh, you know, people who. Some 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 gals, let alone guys, they could, they never did it before, but they could take apart an engine and put it back together and get it running. It's mm-hmm. just like they just have this this ability, like they're they're a savant when it comes to motors, or or a musician or what have you. What about that aspect in the workplace in this regard of rehumanizing it? It's a great question. I think that. Too often we pigeonhole people into a role because of a job description or a job title or a function or whatever, rather than looking at who is the person that is happens to have that role and what are the gifts and talents that they have that they would like to be able to bring more of into the workplace that we could nurture. I mean, what you'll find sometimes is when we do work with organizations, for example, one of the things we'll talk about is having a a culture team or a network of ambassadors that kind of help keep be the voice of employees and keep this work moving forward and have it be a co-created effort. And sometimes you'll find that some of these people, if you maybe you've never talked to them, but you have somebody who's got a side skill or side interest in marketing communications. You have somebody who, you know, writes jingles and logos. You got somebody who likes to event plan. You have somebody, but no one's ever asked them because it's not part of their quote unquote job. And so I think this goes back to the more we get to know people as a human being and know what makes them tick, we have opportunities to have those conversations and find out where those opportunities that we can allow people to bring more of their full gifts, more of their talents um, into the workplace. I've even had uh, uh, employees, uh, one in particular that I work with now, and I was showing them a little bit about how I did certain things. And I'm listening to the station, I don't know, a couple of weeks later. I don't remember producing that. 
that really sounds good. And I found out that he produced it. And I, I complimented him. I says, wow, I thought it was me, you know, that had produced it. And uh, I said, boy, you really, you really picked up on what I showed you. And I, of course, my training is I'm going to show you how I do it. And I'm going to tell you the result that we want. And when I'm done, you're going to learn how you do it as long as you get the result that we want. And I, let, I cut people loose. Um, it's, it's just like uh, I say, uh, you know, especially when they start looking at the console. I said, don't be afraid of the console. I said, the first time you got behind the wheel of a car, all right, it scared you to death, but you learned how to drive the car, right? Yeah. Well, you're going to learn how to drive this too without crashing it. <laughs> and um, so th th that's, that's another aspect of this whole thing too, isn't it? Is, uh, is giving people that freedom uh, in certain instances, not all, <laughs> to make mistakes. You don't want to do it in the, in the operating room, okay? Or in right. a nuclear power plant, that kind of thing. But, uh, and I'm being a little facetious there too, but isn't there room within the workplace? And maybe this has got to be a, a, a mentality change on the part of supervisors and, and so forth. That, and we call them mistakes. I like to refer to them more as learning experiences, okay? Uh, you know what? We didn't get the result we wanted, okay? What happened? What, you know... It's like, uh, I'm sure you've heard the story of uh, Thomas Edison and the uh, light bulb, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yep. 990, um, not getting the result we wanted. And then we right. finally got it. Yep. Well, one of the, yeah, what you're talking about, we talk about this in one of the chapters in the book of freedom with parameters. So it's not like there's anarchy, right? We need to have some guy like this is like you said, this is the result that I want, or this is this is the quality or the end product. And mm -hmm. I think that there's a combination of we have to give people enough guideposts or training, right? So that they don't feel like they're floundering and set up to fail. But then there's nurturing that autonomy. It's freedom with parameters and 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 yeah, you, whether you use Thomas Edison or whoever, if we don't have that, we call it a fearless environment, a psychologically safe space where, yep, you know what, we're never going to learn and grow if we don't give people space to play and make mistakes. And we learn the most from stuff that doesn't go well, as long as we're not shamed and blamed. And it's, what's the learning from this? And okay, that didn't work so well. So how do I want to adjust for next time? And what, what's the learning we want to take forward? Or wow, that conversation really went horrible, or that meeting didn't go so well, or whatever it might be okay, well, let's look at where the breakdown was and how can we be better? And I think that mindset of constantly giving us space to learn and grow because none of us are perfect. We're not going to be. And like, you're right. Yes. If I'm in the operating room, uh, but you know what? I coach surgeons and I will tell you that the surgeons that let themselves, not that they screw up completely, but when they're in there, like it's not going as fast as they would want, but you know what? They're willing to talk about it with a resident so they can learn like, here's where I'm struggling or this isn't happening, whatever they do far better than those that freak out and go, oh my gosh, this isn't happening the way I want. And maybe at the end result with the patient is fine, but now they're going back and beating themselves up. They won't debrief with the resident because they're, they feel ashamed because it took longer than they thought or whatever. So I think that there are spaces where we, even within that, we have to give people opportunities where they can have the conversation and create learning opportunities for other people, or we're in a whole host of trouble. Why is this important to you? It's important to me for two reasons. One, I've lived twice through a toxic work environment. 
and it sucks and it sucks the well-being out of you and it it um it was horrible in my life the amount of stress and and the impact it had on me was terrible but the second one i had and i write about it in the book it, there was more at stake because that time i was married i have a child and i saw what that try not to, but what that stress does and what it brings home and, and the impact that it has, the ripple effect it has around us. Just like if we have a good work environment, we're going to probably go home and be different with our families and we're not. And I just feel like nobody should have to experience that. It's awful. And then I think about people I know who are in friends and family who've been in dehumanized workplaces and I watch what it does to them and my heart aches. And I think about my son, who's going to be 10 on Friday. And I'm like, what is the world going to be like when he gets into the work world? And it better not be the crap that's going on now because I want better for him. That that's, that's really the end of it. That's why it matters so much to me because I've lived through it and I don't want him to ever have to go through that. I've been through it in one workplace. The general manager hired me and treated me like I was his best friend. Now I had never done sales. And never claimed to do sales, but he was going to actually fire the program director and put me in his position. So he wanted to bring me in the back door, as it were. About a month later, after all of the changes, he was treating me as though I had just killed his best friend. Mm. I was literally hiding in the production room and I refused to quit. I refused to give him the satisfaction. And it wasn't until after I left, after I was laid off with a very generous severance package that told me he knew he had done me wrong, I found out that the operation was designed to be a losing operation for the owner of the station who lived in Detroit. He was a millionaire and was using it as a tax write-off. Did not want the station to succeed. We didn't Mm. know that. And so we were doing everything that we knew to do to make it succeed, to make it sound really good, to make it profitable. And he didn't want that. And we didn't know. And if I had known that was the goal of of it being a losing operation, I probably wouldn't have gone to work for him. Right. In spite of the fact that I needed the job. Um, But he taught me a lot about, uh, uh, through that, about sticking to it, you know, not quitting, so to speak. And I certainly had every justification for doing so. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed the work. I, I loved what I was doing the, and the other people that I was working with. Yep. Well, and I know the, the last experience I had, I, it was, it was, it was like, it was the same thing. I went from being, I would say my boss's golden child to something happened, hidden agendas, right. That you don't know about. And I mm-hmm. literally, um, I became metaphorically shit on the bottom of his shoe and it was awful. And, but what, what's interesting is that I remember it was like a bad game of chicken where I was like, am I going to get fired before I can quit and find another job? But I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, this is before all it all went South. I liked what I did. I liked my clients. It was a consulting firm. And I thought, you know what? They can fire me, but I'm going to make it really hard for them because I'm going to continue to do such a stellar job and have such happy clients. And I'm going to go out with my head held high. So if they fire me, they're going to look like absolute morons. Right. And when I quit, it's going to hurt. So that, that was my deal. And I was like, I'm going to make it painful for you. And then, you know what, I'm going to leave and be really successful. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm going to write about you in my book. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the names have been changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> and the other aspect of it too, Rosie, is the fact that uh, we have to look back on these people uh, and actually thank them yeah. for what they've taught us. Yeah. It takes and, time, but I, I definitely, oh, yeah. I've said, you know, um, you know, looking back, I, while I wouldn't wish this experience on anybody in the world, I think no. for me, it, it, it reaffirmed why I do what I do. And it reaffirmed that I was on the right path when I was there. Cause I was mm-hmm. kind of, I was advocating for this work, um, while I was there. And for me, it's, I, I learned so much. And I don't, I mean, honestly, I, and actually, I think I wrote about this in the book. I said, I don't know what I would ever do if I saw my former boss again, but I said, I would probably thank him for being such a a a-hole to me because (laughs) it lit a fire under me to like write our first book. Cause this is our second book. It lit a fire under me to resurrect my company because it had been like sitting aside. It it really lit a fire under me to go, you know what? No one else is going to go through this. And I don't know who knows. I might still be there playing it safe and I, maybe I would, I probably wouldn't, but I mean, who knows where you'd be. So I think sometimes those opportunities catapult you to be like, all right, you know, and it started out as a screw you, but it turned into, no, this is my passion. And I'm actually so thankful. I'm not constrained by that place anymore. And so it really is an, uh, weird twisted gift, but it is. I actually went on to the next station that I went to work for. And it was as if I had found my family home. They treated me with open arms, gave me opportunities. uh, And it was really very interesting the way it all unfolded because uh, two months after I was hired, the the board decided uh, that they they wanted to, they they wanted to sell the station. And of course, you know, the old adage, last hired, first fired. Well, I made the cut. (laughs) And then in January, they had to do some more cutting. I still made the cut. And of course, in March, I was cut. But two weeks later, they called me back saying, could you come back and run the station until the new owners take over? And I said, sure. And then Mm -hmm. the new owners hired me. And well, anyway, so you just never know what karma you will generate by doing the kinds of things that you and I did uh, and and so forth. And so there was a great lesson that was learned there. Yeah. You said you had uh, the first book. Tell me about the first book. Yeah. The first book was five years ago. Um, it's, it's odd that it's been that long. Uh, so we wrote that one and it's called how to build a thriving culture at work. And it was, it's really a blueprint about, uh, we use an analogy that building a thriving workplace culture is similar to building a structurally sound and aesthetically pleasing house. You can't skip steps, use outdated materials. So we use this metaphor to walk people through a blueprint of how they can transform culture really, um, we talk, we call the intersection or the inextricable interconnectedness of individual well-being and organizational well-being. And so that's really the focus of the first book. And so this book is like, is I think taking that to another level. So when we first resurrected Salveo Partners, my company, and our whole purpose is about rehumanizing the workplace, it started out as how do we help build thriving workplace cultures? And as we got into this work and started to get clear about our purpose and our passion and really our core values, realized that having a thriving workplace culture is like a start 
but there's something bigger. And so it became that, no, we need human workplaces. And if they're human, people can thrive, but this is like, this is like your foundation, but like, we've got to, we've got to think bigger and we've got to go broader. And so, so yeah, this is kind of, I don't know, version 2.0 and, um, and a lot happened over the last five years. So we felt like it was time to, to put, put some new stuff out there. And the real irony is a lot has happened in the, just the last uh, 10 months right? Uh, and, and it's changed everything. And maybe <clears throat> I've heard this from many people and maybe it was time that things really drastically changed. And I realize a lot of people have been uh, temporarily hurt by this, but if they're still alive and I hope that they all, many of them are, they're still alive. There's still hope. There's still opportunity. And that was one of the things that I thought of when uh, they started shutting things down. I'm thinking not only, as I said earlier, great, that we're doing something different than we've ever done before, which means we're going to get a different result, unlike Einstein's uh, definition of insanity. And then I also said, we're doing something different. That means there are going to be new opportunities for all of us. And some of them we don't even know yet. I didn't know about doing video editing back then. I mean, sure, we had a video editor upstairs who used to do uh, some programs upstairs above us. And and, uh, I picked up a little here and there, but I never actually ran anything. I was focused on the radio and audio. Well, now I'm doing video and it's kind of cool. And I'm starting to think about, uh, I mean, I'm I'm watching movies and television shows from a whole different perspective as well. It's oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's like a lot of our business was, I mean, we did stuff via Zoom before and we did trainings and whatnot, but a lot of my stuff, I spent most of my time on a plane. I was keynoting, keynoting conferences. I was doing speaking engagements and teaching workshops and visiting clients. And so we had to pivot a lot of that to figure out how do you do it effectively in a virtual environment? And then because literally of speaking engagements getting canceled, I launched a podcast last month. I'm like, I didn't know I was ever going to do it, but I'm like, you got to find a way. How do you keep stuff out in front of people? How do you add value? How do you challenge people to think when you don't have an audience of hundreds of people that you Mm. can be in front of physically? So yeah, I think it's created opportunities for us to, um, you know, I mean, pivot is also the word of 2020, right? Rethink your business, but it's, it's rethinking, well, how can I add value and, and what, what else could I try where I can use my gifts and talents? Yeah. And sometimes we don't even know what our gifts and talents are until uh, some adversities or challenges or changes come along. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Who Moved the Cheese? Yeah, it's been a long time, but I think I have it in my bookcase somewhere. (laughs) Me too. Well, I don't have it in my bookcase. I gave it back to my boss. He made it mandatory reading. And I went, I took it back to him. And I said, I get the message of the book. And I want you to know that I do not have a problem with people moving the cheese. My problem is with them not telling me where Mm. they moved it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I have to be, I have to be conscious also of the fact that I moved the cheese on my wife. I go in, I'll rearrange the refrigerator or one of the cupboards, you know, and I'm looking for, do you know where this is or that is, or the, and this is her question to me. And I'm going, uh, yeah, it's in, and I usually have to go in and show her where it is. And then I was like, I realized, oh, you know, I didn't tell her that I did this. Now, with my first wife, who was totally blind, I couldn't do that. Because she had to have everything where it was so she knew where to find it. Right. You know, because she can't go searching around like everybody else. So 
let's talk about that issue of change. Uh, I quote this lyric almost every time I talk about it. Changes somehow frighten me. Still, I have to smile. It turns me on to think of growing old. I'm 60 now. I got 40 years to go. But change is the one constant in the universe. And yet we have been trained, taught, programmed, whatever you want to put it there, uh, to fear it, to mm -hmm. not have it. We want, um, uh, we want static, not dynamic, because static is, it's like when they talk about the economy. And, you know, we gotta, you don't want a static economy. You, you know, well, always want it going up. You know, that's probably the only thing that they want to change, and, but they want it to always go up. What about that in the workplace in terms of rehumanizing re uh, the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. We talk about that a lot in the book as well. And I don't know if we use this quote in the book or not. I can't remember off the top of my head, but Peter Senge is known for saying people don't resist change. They resist being change. And I think that goes and that flies in the face of are we are we nurturing autonomy and are we giving people some kind of say or are we including them in, in the process or being transparent about the process? And so one of the things that I think about is it we have to be really clear about what is the type of change that we are talking about. And so in the book, we quote some research from um, Harvard uh, professors, uh, Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky. And to be really brief, but I think it's really important, they talk about the difference between what they call a technical challenge versus an adaptive challenge. So technical challenges or technical change are those where they're straightforward. There's a, a known solution that we can follow. We can easily obtain the knowledge, skills, and resources to solve it. This is where a checklist, a standard operating procedure, we can look at what we did before, and it's straightforward and fairly predictable, right? So if you're going to upgrade a, a software program, you know, you kind of have steps you're going to follow. If you're going to move a building or move offices, you have probably checklists of, you know, how you, the processes you do. But then there's this whole other type of challenge, which is called an adaptive challenge or adaptive change. And by definition, with adaptive change and adaptive challenges, there isn't a known solution. So now we're entering into uncharted territory. And the problem with that is it's kind of the saying of the thinking that got you there isn't going to get you here, is it actually forces us to let go of our existing thinking, knowledge, skills, paradigms, whatnot, because we have to shift our mindset. We have to shift our attitude and our values. And that's that creates discomfort. And as human beings, our human brain we will postpone or avoid discomfort if we if we can because we don't like to feel that because we have this this we are hardwired to maximize reward and minimize threat we are hardwired to seek out familiarity to seek out comfort and so i think the challenge becomes that the majority of the change the majority of the challenges we are asking people to navigate through and the change we're asking them to do is actually adaptive change it's not technical and but we try to use a technical solution for what is largely an adaptive change issue or an adaptive challenge issue. And so in order to help people navigate these waters of change, and let's be honest, 2020 is one big adaptive challenge after another. Like we haven't been in a pandemic before. We haven't faced you know, a lot of this stuff before. And so it requires us to literally be creative. It means we've got to listen to one another. It means we've got to stick our neck out there and come up with ideas. We've got to listen. We've got to collaborate. We've got to look at data in a different way. And we can't we can't approach things the way we always have. We can use some of that to inform us, but that's not going to ultimately help us to solve the solution. And so when we think about change at the workplace and even change in our lives, if we are talking about an adaptive challenge, which is a lot of what we face right now, we have to do the work to help people 
deal with the emotional discomfort. We have to do the work to help them realize when they're they're doubling down and being defensive just because it's unsettling rather than ha- saying this is this is anxious. This is anxiety provoking. This is worrisome, but I'm going to not tap out. I'm going to lean into that because I know that's the only path forward. So I think that that's what we have to pay attention to is, are we talking about a technical change? Or are we talking about an adaptive change? And when we're talking about adaptive change, we need to realize that people want to be part of that change. They don't want to be changed, right? They need to, they want to know that they they have some say or their ideas are being heard. And we have to equip people with the skills of how can they lean into that adaptive change versus armoring up, getting judgmental, tapping out those types of things. So there's a whole lot in that, but that's kind of the way that I see it is we've got to first and foremost, know what kind of challenge we're dealing with and then equip people when it's adaptive in nature to navigate that space in a much more effective way. Yeah. And I I have to shift my uh, attitude in that regard too, because I often, uh, I hear the people complaining about, you know, the changes. And, and I just want to respond with them. Look, deal with it. We're not, we can't go, we can't go back. It's not that I don't want to, we can't. So you just have to deal with the way things are now. And of course that's not helpful at all because right. as you just said, I'm not dealing with the emotional impact that this, this, these changes are having on people. I'm telling them, suck it up, man up or woman up, put your big boy, big girl pants on yeah. and let's move forward. Well, we will move forward, but first we got to deal with the stuff and that's just the way it is. Let me ask you before we wrap things up here, and I thank you so much for giving us so much time. We're talking about rebuilding, rehumanizing. Well, as a matter of speaking, rebuilding, rehumanizing the workplace. Um, Talk to us about this concept of rehumanizing the workplace and i want to call it the soul of a company of the workplace of a business of a corporation i like that the soul of it i think that one of the things that we talk about when you talk about the soul of the organization there's multiple things that come to mind the way that i think about it in in our book we talk about five different rehumanizing principles and so when i think about the soul of the organization what comes to mind for me first of all is what we call rehumanizing principle number 1 which is build a lighthouse so what does a lighthouse do it helps cut through the fog you know stormy waters stormy seas and the boats kind of know where to go it helps them find their path forward well, if a company doesn't have a purpose beyond we're here to make a profit, if they don't have a purpose where like, you know, there's something, there's there's a bigger calling that we want to be a part of, we want to help further it, we want to help do something good in the world that people don't feel connected to and believe in, that's where you have a lot of swirl. And they cannot live into their purpose if they have not done the work to operationalize their core values, meaning we've translated our core values into actual behaviors. Like it's very clear of here's what you do kind of here's what you don't do in the service of our purpose. And I think that's where a lot of breakdown happens. And so when you talk about the soul of a company, this is where Simon Sinek's work can be super helpful of have you identified your why or your purpose and do people know it? And are you finding ways to keep it alive? And do you really have true core values that have been operationalized that you use in the hiring process, right? That you, you keep alive with very deliberate practices. So like for us, one of ours 
is literally we say sound science is your friend. Ironic because the the conversation we were having earlier. And so we always say that everything we do needs to be rooted in science applicable to human beings. And, and, and so like when people will say something, we'll look at, well, that's science that's 50 years old and it was done on mice. So we're going to root ourselves in science that, you know, is applicable to be human beings. And so it gives us a filter of when we have to face really tough decisions, how do we show up? How do we behave? Right. And you need everyone to kind of have that guidepost. So the soul of the company to me is, do you have a clear purpose and have people internalize your core values where people are using that to make decisions? Not that they're robots and Stepford wives or something, but everyone has a filter that this is how we behave in this company so that for the greater good, we can serve our purpose. And not that people aren't going to mess up or whatnot, but we have guideposts of when we start to operate outside of our values, we have a way to kind of get ourselves back in alignment. Um, that to me is the essence of the soul of the company. And we feature so many in our book that they've created really good deliberate practices around how do they truly keep their values alive and how do they use that um, to, to move themselves forward. And I think to me, that's the, that's the heart and that's the soul of, of the company. And then it's all the things that you do to, to nurture that and nourish that and keep it alive. How about the science of metaphysics? <laughs> 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 oh my God, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. We won't go there. We won't, not today anyway. Maybe another not, time. We get together and talk about the metaphysics uh, <laughs> involved in, uh, in business because I learned, I don't agree with it, but I learned that we have uh, restaurants up and down our main street called State Street. And many times the question uh, is asked of someone who wants to open a restaurant. Why do you want to open a restaurant? What's, what's your reason for opening it? And of course, you get many different answers. I want to provide a service. I want to provide this food that my mother and my grandmother made and all of these different things, right? And the person asking the question already has the answer for them. And they said, no, that is not the reason that you go into business to open a restaurant. You go into business to open a restaurant to make money. Mm. And, and I just, I, it, as I, I disagree with that okay. because it's like, then why do, would anybody go into the line of work that they would go into if it's only about making money? Well, then why wouldn't you go into a business that makes you the most money that you could possibly make, no matter right. if you loved it or hate it? And I did that for like uh, almost, almost a year. I worked for a company here in Santa Barbara um, called Bargain Network. And what they did was they took incoming calls from people who were answering an ad for a little booklet, $29.95 a month, that we'd send out to you uh, for uh, a real estate, uh, for cars. And then, of course, they added to that a real estate. So there was another thing. And I hated that job. And the irony was, and I was really good at that job. I was one of the top sellers for the last three weeks that I was there. And I would tell my dad how much I, I, I just didn't like it. He says, I understand that, but you won't be doing it for long. Eventually that radio job or TV, whatever, come along and you'll be able to move on to something else. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, but it, it taught me that there are people who just, I mean, there were some people there that's all they wanted to do is just make as much money as they possibly could. I just didn't like the way that we were making it. It just didn't feel right. And yet, you know, again, I was there for probably eight or nine months. But we all get stuck like that sometimes, don't we? And that tends to undermine the rehumanizing of the workplace 
because you have people who they're they may very be very good at the job they do, but they really don't like being there and coming in five days a week, nine to five. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you deal with someone like that? So that you're not blaming them, you're not shaming them. How would you, how can you be supportive of someone like that? And then, um, I mean, what's the dynamic? How, 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 what, how, what do we do? What do we do? Well, there's, there's multiple things. If I go back to my lighthouse analogy, what I have found is that when organizations get really clear about what their purpose is and, and it's articulated and it's lived and they get really clear about their core values and they've been operationalized into clear behaviors and they create deliberate practice. So there's a lot of intentionality around that lighthouse, so to speak, their purpose and their values. It becomes easier to start to see who are the people that, you know, uh, want you to help further this purpose out in the community, out in the universe, and who are those that don't. And so one of the things that a lot of these companies do, and this is not about getting everybody who thinks and acts like us, it's really fundamentally, do you believe what we believe? And then let's be as diverse as we can to have people move this forward, right, in a more effective way in more diverse communities and and marketplaces, et cetera. And one of the things that these organizations do that are very deliberate about it is, as an example, is they're monitoring various metrics. It's not just profitability, it's how well are you embodying our values? And you know what? We might actually get feedback from customers that say, you know, does this person live this value? We might get feedback from your colleagues. So they they look at a really holistic way of how do we determine if people are actually living our values? And if they're not, and if they're that miserable, it becomes a learning moment and a coachable moment. And sometimes it's just that someone has become so disheartened because they've had a bad experience that someone is just so on autopilot and they really haven't thought about what fulfills them. And sometimes when organizations start to be more intentional about their culture, more intentional about their purpose, more intentional about their leadership, you find that some people who have been the biggest curmudgeons who have long tenure actually kind of start to come alive again in their work. And sometimes you find where there's the people that just don't, and then it becomes easier to start to have the conversations of maybe you're going to be happier elsewhere, right? And and so like here's the expectation. So we, what we talk about is when you get really clear about who you are, it doesn't mean that things are all unicorns and rainbows, but really people have two options. They can either opt in or opt out. I can opt in and say, you know what, I'm going to help you work through the challenges and I'm going to be part of this. And, you know, things are going to be messy, but I believe in this and we're, we're going to be part of it. Or I'm going to say, this isn't for me, but what you don't get to do is stay in hate. So a lot of the, the coaching we do with our, with our clients is you cannot have the people who stay in hate that are going to sabotage and whatever, because that is toxic. So there's a difference of, I'm not so sure that I'm there yet. Well, you you treat them well, you nurture them, and they'll come along eventually, or they'll decide they'll either opt in or opt out. But mm-hmm. what you have to tend to and be mindful of, do you have someone who's staying and hating? That's a very different story. Yeah. And there's also the possibility, as I think you alluded to, of maybe finding another position in that same company. Maybe there's something in the company that they would rather be doing than, you know, assembling widgets, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so there's that possibility. And that's the reason why I try to share everything that I can with everybody that I, I come in contact with and work with and say, look, you know, this, this is what we do here, but there are a lot of different components to it. Maybe, maybe there's a part of this component, one of these components that you'd like to do more than others. And that's why I tell new people getting in the business learn everything you can about every aspect of this business so that you can 
tap into and find that part that you really like or find out that this really wasn't what you wanted to do in the first place. So very, very interesting stuff. And I am very excited uh, about the prospects for the future. I want to thank you so much, Rosie Ward, for joining us and sharing with us uh, rehumanizing the workplace, because as you alluded to earlier in the program, it will also rehumanize you and your relationships outside the workplace, not just within it. I mean, it's, 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 it, it overflows, as I was mentioning at the front end of the program. It literally will overflow into other parts of your life, in all parts of your life, I should say, not just other parts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now you have a company of your own. You yes. have employees. Uh, we have independent contractors. We have not yet crossed the threshold to have employees, but yes, we have, we have, we're small, but mighty. But don't you also have to relate to those independent contractors in such a way, again, as oh, yeah. to get the result you want? You know, it's Absolutely. like, I don't want to see, how, I, I love it. I hate this analogy, but I can't think of any other. I don't want to see how the sausage is made. I just want to see the sausage on my plate and next to my eggs. Yeah, I would say regardless of the legal employment status, um, you know, we're a team. And so, yeah, yeah so we, we've we done the work uh, and we talk about our journey where we had missteps and we hadn't done our work to find our why and our values and whatnot. And when we did, it made life so much easier. And as we grow and we need people, we have a clear filter. We have a clear process of these are the things that you need to be trained on. And this is kind of the mindset you need to have. And then we look at what are the skill sets we need. And yeah, and so we're we're trying to, live it and we make, we make mistakes too, but it's so much easier when you have, um, some intentionality behind it. It may, it makes it a whole lot easier for sure. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate the time you've given us a lot of time here on the program. It's been a lot of fun and uh, very educational on my part, because I feel like, uh, for the most part, I've done a lot of the right things based upon what you've shared with us on the program. Uh, but the, of course, I know there's always room for improvement for all of us because, again, no, none of us is perfect and we're all just trying to work our way through all of this. And I do have three final questions for you. I'm hoping one day maybe we get to meet face to face in person. But uh, until yeah. that day, we'll maybe do this again on Zoom and uh, help to uh, edify and educate people on this whole aspect. Um, but before I ask you my three final questions, which you may have answered during the program, but I like to ask them pointedly just the same. I want to remind our listeners, this program is here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Bluetooth, uh, I beg your pardon, Blueberry, and YouTube is now where the video casts are. So we thank you so much for going there. Type in Richard Dugan, you'll find it. Uh, if you want to subscribe, uh, great. We'd love to have you do that but also want you to listen to and watch these programs. Go to our guest website. The website in this case is rosieward.com. And uh, we thank you again so much for joining us here on the program. And my three final questions are as follows. Number one, who is Rosie Ward? Who is Rosie Ward? I would say that I am a fierce advocate for humanity. I um, I, I really want the best for people around me. And I would say I don't take myself too seriously. And my favorite color is sparkle. That's me. I'm, I'm a sparkly humanitarian. How about that? I like that. 
very much. <laughs> Sparkly humanitarian. That's who I am. Okay. I love it. I love it. I will remember that. You sparkly humanitarian, you. <laughs> Question number two. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? What I hope to achieve is that more people just get out of their own way and just start to step into the greatness that they have inside of them and are creating communities and spaces around them to do the same, whether that's at home, whether that's in their communities, whether that's at workplaces. Um, but it's really that ripple effect. That That's really what I'm hoping. And final question, what is your life's purpose? My purpose is to foster moments of insight so that people can break past barriers and make a positive impact around them. Well, Rosie Ward, thank you so much. I think that uh, you have accomplished that here on this program uh, with sharing this with us the information that you have and the insights. Uh, and uh, we look forward to having you back again uh, in 2021 to talk more about this and whatever other projects you've got going on at that time. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great. I want to thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. A reminder that if you'd like to support this program, we have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. And we ask you to participate in the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. Spend that time. It, it, it won't hurt. I promise you. It will do nothing but help. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to love.